Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Welcome to those of you who made it out and braved that cold weather, and to those of you who needed to stay home for whatever reason, I'm so glad you're here as well. My name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is the first time I get to stand on this stage in 2022, so Happy New Year to you. Uh, We enjoyed our time away, but I have so been looking forward to getting back and starting this brand new series this morning. Uh, And so as you open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 1, I I do want to remind you just of a couple of things, Uh, most notably that right outside in the foyer. There's a, just a collection of resources that is available to you for purchase. You can get them here. Uh, you can just scan the QR code and buy it off of Amazon if you'd like. Uh, but Pastor Dave mentioned at the outset of our time together that I'm doing an in-depth study. That is partially true, but there's only so much in-depth you can do in 19 weeks. Okay, especially of a book like this. And so as we move through this together, some of you may want to dive a little deeper. And so what you have outside in the foyer are the actual resources. There's at least five such resources that I have personally used in putting this series together that will help you make those deep dives. Most notably, I've encouraged your small group leaders to use Daryl Johnson's book, Discipleship on the Edge. I think it captures probably better than any of those other resources out there, the practical implications of the book that we're going to be studying over the next 19 weeks. Let me also invite you, if you haven't already, to share this on social media. There is so much hope in this series, in this letter, and so much of it encapsulated just in this first chapter as we begin this. And so as we ended last year and began promoting this series, I I started getting some questions. Why, Why would you do Revelation and why would you do it now? People have different views of Revelation that tend to, generally speaking, kind of cut along the lines of, of two different understandings. Some of you have been waiting on this since I got here in 2016. And you're like, fork and knife, and yeah, let's do it. And, and it's probably because you got a little bit too much of a sugar high when it comes to prophecy. I'll deal with you later, all right? And, and some of the rest of you are like, I don't even want to touch this thing because there's so many kooks around it. And you're right, but it's still God's Word. And so why would I pick this book and why would I do it now? And I've gotten questions like, Pastor, is there something on the horizon? Is there some globally huge thing about to happen? So let me me get this cleared up just up front. My primary concern in consultation with our elders turning to this part of Scripture at this moment actually has very little to do with what's going on at culture in the culture at large. It has everything to do with the church's reaction to it and interaction with it. It has everything to do with what's going on on with us. And here's why I say that. I think everybody agrees, regardless of your perspective or who you think is right or wrong, that, that over the past couple of years, we've seen our culture shaken up in ways that have, has never happened before in our lifetimes. I don't know anybody alive right now who would say that the culture at large or the world as a whole has, has ever been through more trauma than it has been now, except for maybe just one or two people that are still alive who were witnessing as adults World War II. Most of us, this is it. And it's in those crucible moments where we find a number of things that get revealed about individuals, about churches, about institutions, character, strength, endurance, faithfulness. 
I mean, it's just a general truism, is it not? You never really learn anything about your own character or your own level of resilience or your own commitment or faithfulness to what you say we believe uh, until you encounter adversity, until those beliefs are tested. But it's in those moments that a letter like Revelation becomes a mirror for you and me. And we look into that reflection and we start to see what we're made of. And so Revelation was written to reveal who our Lord is and simultaneously to reveal who we're made of. All right, let me say that again. Revelation was written to unveil who our Lord is, remind us of who he is in the middle of hard times, and simultaneously to reveal what we're really made of in that moment. Some of us are going to like what we see over the next nine weeks, 19 weeks. Some of us may not like it, but there's a challenge and kind of a loving push, if you will, by Jesus in the middle of this. A friend of mine put it this way a few years, uh, a few months back, actually, just getting all sorts of claims now, as we see in culture, about attacks on Christianity and this sort of adversarial culture warring posture that too many prominent Christian leaders have encouraged us to take in this time and place. And, and he said this, and I said, that's it. That's exactly it. He said, Christianity is not under attack, but it is under review. And I said, there it is. He's exactly right. Your religious liberty is not, by and large, under attack, but it is under review. There's a God who loves us. He, he has called us together as, as the body of Christ. He's, he's brought us together to fulfill a particular purpose, though, and he's allowed us to undergo some hardship, and he is watching how we respond, and he is looking to see if there's something beneath that nationwide, culture-wide, otherwise very thin, very consumeristic, very selfish, very me-first veneer of spirituality that is the evil. Easy, Americanized, Western version of Christianity. God is asking us in this moment, is there any real commitment to Jesus? Is there a real heart that longs for love of God and love of neighbor? And, and while that review is still processing, this is what I want to tell you. I believe with all my heart, Covenant Church was built for a moment like this. I told you six years ago when I came here, one of the reasons I came, one was your mission which we still have. I haven't changed that a bit. Growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. How in the world could you improve on that? That was one reason I came. The other reason I came was because I believed then and I still believe now that this particular body is a sleeping giant. And we're doing revelation now in this time in this place because I think it's time for the giant to awaken. I think it's time to wake up. And God is watching how we respond. But the only way we rise to meet that moment is with a clear picture of who we serve. And there is not, brothers and sisters, a more clear picture anywhere else in Scripture than in the apocalypse. It's why this book is such a blessing and a gift to God for us. So we're going to cover the first chapter today. And one of the things we're going to see in much greater detail in this first chapter is what will continue to be in repeated cycles summarized for us uh, throughout the rest of the book. So there's a five-fold challenge that I want you to hear this morning. It comes in great detail out of chapter one. And then again, we're going to see it recurring in cycles. The same sort of five-fold challenge is going to keep coming back at us and at us and at us as a mirror, as it were, that we need to look in to see what we're made of in light of the reminder we get in this book, all 22 chapters of who Jesus is. Here are the five. 
Number one, there's a challenge here to see yourself as blessed by what is revealed. Verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy for the next 19 weeks. Consider yourself blessed. That's what the Holy Spirit inspired author is saying here. And who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So right from the start, we're told what this thing is. What is revelation? It's three things, actually. Number one, it's a letter. It's a letter of correspondence written by John describing a vision that he saw. It is written to seven persecuted churches in Asia Minor. Verse three says, blessed are those who hear and read aloud. So this is intended communication back and forth between the apostle and these churches. Now that means this, this is a foundational principle for understanding what everything else means from this point forward. What it means to us must be whatever it meant to them. Okay. You ever, you ever read over somebody's shoulder while they were reading a letter to themselves? Okay. Imagine trying to read that letter as if it were initially written to you. That's, you you're not going to get a good outcome from that, are you? You're just not. And so this letter was written originally to them. We must determine what is it that John's trying to communicate to these churches. Then we're going to know what it needs to mean to us because, conversely, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. You get that? All right? So we've got to start with that principle. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. You nor I get to infuse our own meaning into God's inspired word. But a lot of that going around with regard to Revelation over about the last 100 years, and it's time for it to stop. Okay, that, that, That's not just stupid. That actually borders on the blasphemous. What did it mean to these churches? It's a letter. It is secondly a prophetic. It is apocalypse. Now, when, when we say apocalypse, don't, don't let that word trigger you to those B-rated films you saw in the 1980s about Revelation or to The Walking Dead, right? That's not, the, the word apocalypse simply means to reveal the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole thing is an unveiling of the glory of Jesus. And so it's those three things, the understanding that it's a letter, that it is a prophecy, that it is a revealing letter of prophecy, an apocalyptic letter. Those things set the context for us. The writer is John. And when you look at John's life, it's hard to imagine a more appropriate recipient of this letter. Let me just remind you by way of introduction, everything that John lived through before having experience, the experience that resulted in this letter. This is a guy who lived through the reign of Nero. Nero reigned from 54 to 68. The historian Tacitus refers to the refined cruelty. In other words, Nero made cruelty, cruel and unusual punishment, an art. And he used it against all of his perceived political enemies. He used Christians to amuse people by graphic violence against them and torture of them before killing them. 
John lives through all of that. He bears witness. He has a front row seat to this graphic and, and unspeakable treatment of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, he lived through the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. This happened in AD 70. Prior to that moment, this edifice was the geographic, civic, and spiritual center of all Jewish worship. So he watches the centerpiece of all of that just wiped away as Jesus prophesied, not one stone left upon another. By the way, also in AD 70 was the martyrdom of Paul, Peter, and Timothy. So imagine a world in which we have some edifice that, that exemplifies the centerpiece of our worship and it's destroyed at the same time three very notable Christian celebrities, scholars, very well-known preachers of the gospel are just wiped from the face of the earth. John lives through that. And then after enduring for another decade, he will endure the reign of Domitian. This is the emperor who outlawed Christian worship. He said it was unpatriotic. This was the one who was imprisoned. John, D Domitian is the reason that John writes this letter from an island prison. So I want you to think about this author for a minute. Imagine if you can, watching everything you cherish in this life fundamentally altered and changed. It'll never be the same again. Watching every institution that provides you with stability removed. Every measure of personal security is taken away. Every relationship that is precious to you is affected in some way by the ensuing persecution. That's John. That's the one who writes. And, and think about these seven churches all experiencing exactly the same thing and wondering where their hope is going to come from. And then they receive a letter that opens with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. This is the revelation. When this man and these churches are at their lowest, God sends his messenger to this political prisoner for the, the purpose of pulling back the veil between this physical world and the spiritual powers that play behind the curtain so that he and they and 2,000 years later, you and I could be reminded of what's really going on and have encouragement no matter what's going on in our lives. This is what the book does. It sets us up to lean into the mission of God when things get hard. And so it's important that we understand it well so that we can do exactly that. And, and understanding this book has been complicated. Because again, for about the, seven, about the past 75 years, it's been jacked up by some really bad teaching. This book has been stolen from the church by B-rated movies full of guillotines and one world governments and chips installed on somebody's forehead. Y'all remember those from the 1980s? They scared me to death. I don't remember falling in love with Jesus as a result of watching any of that, which should tell you something about the fruit of such nonsense. But that, that's what's happened. That's what's happened. Meanwhile, the first verse tells us plain as day, this revelation is not of, it's not of some complex timeline filled with multiple figures. Stop trying to make one-to-one -one correlations between something John wrote in the first century and something you may or may not be reading about in the newspaper in the 21st century. Or again, you're going to wind up with a wholly jacked up view of what this letter is. You're never going to get the hope. All right, let me just give you a little preview. The locusts and revelation are not Apache helicopters. Okay, the COVID vaccine is not the mark of the beast. You may want it, you may not want it. That's entirely up to you. We, we've had, but you can't believe that about it because it's just stupid. Okay, 
the irony of people. I, I don't know about you. Do you mean I'm not taking that thing? I'm telling you what, they're going to put something in there and they're going to track me with it. You've got a phone. They know where you are. Right? Don't make one-to-one correlations and tie this. What is it? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's where the blessing comes from, okay? This is not a book of doom and gloom. It's not a book intended to spark paranoia about who you need to look out for, who your enemy. Revelation is a book of consummation. Revelation is intended in the middle of your worst moments to inject courage into the people of God by captivating us with the absolute unveiled glory of Jesus. That's what it's here for. What a blessing. And furthermore, we're told this is a blessing you can trust in. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom and priest. Listen, I know what you're going through right now. Here's your reality in the heavenlies. You are a kingdom. You are priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come. The Almighty. So John says in these four verses, somebody revealed something very powerfully to me. And before I reveal everything he showed me, I want you to know him. And on the basis of the identity of the revelator, I want you to have confidence that everything I'm about to reveal to you is true. This is interesting. This is an apostle. This is a guy who could have stood on his own authority as, as one of those who was, Ephesians tells us, the foundation upon which our faith was built. He could have just said, look, he could have pulled rank on the church and said, look, you believe me because what I'm telling you is true. But he doesn't do that. He says, I, 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 want, your, I want your confidence to be in something stronger than me. I want it to be in the one that I describe in these four verses. So this vision that I had is grounded in an authority that teaches us that visions, though they can and often are, legitimate things that people experience are not an authority source. If you have a vision about the future or a vision about or you get a word from the Lord or you get a whatever, listen, all that has to be tested by something else. That stuff by itself is not an authority source. Otherwise, we've just got epistemological anarchy, okay? God told me this. Oh, yeah, well, God told me that. Well, the whole God told me thing kind of stops conversation, doesn't it? Doesn't it? God told me to tell you. God revealed this to me. Listen, it, Dreams and visions can be legitimate. We believe God grants such things at Covenant. We're not opposed to that. But we don't swing wildly on the basis of somebody having a dream. We handle those things carefully, and they're subjected to Scripture. Because sometimes God told me, God revealed to me, doesn't mean that God did any such thing to you. Sometimes God told me, God revealed to me, means, dude, you've you stayed up way, way too late last night. You got to quit eating pepperoni rolls at 11 o'clock because you ain't in your 20s anymore. Sometimes that's what it means. Okay? So, so how do you determine what's legitimate and what's not? Well, we get a clue here. Even the apostle who has the right to pull rank, the one who has rights you and I don't have to say God told me to tell you. 
He doesn't assume credibility merely because he had a vision. Just like every faithful messenger before him, he grounds the validity of this experience in the person and work of Jesus and in the history of Jesus' work. I know he's going to come again, John says, because he's Alpha and Omega, who was, who is, who is to come. He's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Domitian may not realize it now, but he is Jesus' subject. And so as every other king and every other president and every other emperor that ever has or ever will live, God is sovereign over it all. And behind the curtain, he has pulled back from me. I see him victorious and I know that it's true and I can trust it and you can trust it. Not merely because I had a vision, but because about 60 years ago, guys, I personally watched this man predict his own death and resurrection and then he pulled it off. That's how I can have confidence in this. He's the firstborn from the dead. And because of all this, I believe him when he says he's coming back. I believe him when he says he loves me. He is a faithful witness. In the midst of everything that the world has thrown at us collectively, at you individually, your hope and your trust in God does not come from how you feel. It comes from what you know to be true. And what you and I know to be true is never defined for us by what's going on in this moment or the next moment. It was defined for us two millennia ago when a dead man rose from me. I get all kinds of apologetic questions sometimes from people who they still have questions about Christian faith. And well, I want to, you know, Jesus, boy, this sounds great. I really want to follow him, but I'm not too sure about this whole age of the earth thing. And I'm not really too sure about it. And I just kind of cancel my, look, look, we get to all that later. All right. That's not how you come to faith in Jesus. Here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider that two millennia ago, something happened that turned cowards into people willing to die for what they believed. And I think you and I both need to answer what we think that was. I believe it was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Folks, that's where faith comes from. That's where it comes from. That's where your identity comes from. That's where your trust comes from. Because I live, you will live also. Do you believe it? Do you not believe it? Our hope comes from what we know is true. And so the blessing of Revelation is it gives us further grounds for trust in the Lord Jesus. And then that's going to help us persevere. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John identifies himself, I think it's, it's so touching here, first of all, as a partner and companion in their tribulation. Just so y'all know, I ain't writing from no ivory tower. I'm writing from jail. I've got some street cred here. I'm not just speaking from on high. I'm in the middle of this with you. We're in this together. You know what that teaches? Understanding comes, at least in part, from shared suffering. This is, this is why it is foolish to jump ship on a church when times get hard. Because the learning's just starting. The lessons are just beginning. One of the reasons I've waited till now, I think, to spend a lot of time in this book is because it is difficult to impossible to understand what's being written here unless you have truly suffered. People who have suffered greater than me, I think in many ways might understand it better than me. Courage 
comes from your view of the kingdom of God in the midst of suffering. And we'll see this king and kingdom a lot more clearly over the next 19 weeks if we understand a couple of things. Just, just, just literature 101, okay? Number one, remember as we move through this book, it is not written in chronological order, okay? History books are written, right? An American history book. You start at 1776. You move all the way forward. But every once in a while, you, you, you have to backtrack and show how, for example, maybe how something that happened in 1877 would later affect something that happened in 1968. Might want to Google that one when you get home. I don't have time to get into it, right? But, but sometimes some history is, is told chronologically. Revelation is not history. Revelation is not put in chronological order. I'll give you one example. When we get to chapter 12, which, by the way, is my favorite part of this book, there's a war in heaven. There's a dragon. There's a pregnant woman. There's a child. I'll just kind of give you the, sort of fast forward to the end here, give you, give you the meaning of that. This is the first Christmas. This is Christmas morning. John, seven chapters into the meat of these visions, from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 11, and then all of a sudden, he goes back 90 years, all right? So understanding where he's at and what he's describing, all that's determined by the Holy Spirit through the pen of John, not us. We've got to understand that. It's not You start reading this as, as if it's, well, this happens, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. You end up with all kinds of jacked up understandings. The question for Revelation is not what happens next. The question is, what does John see next, okay? Book's not in chronological order. Secondly, this book is not concerned with historical minutia, okay? You and I, understandably, are concerned about things you read in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post yesterday. Revelation is not. It has a singular focus, the kingdom and its king. Now, can it teach you how to live in light of what you read in yesterday's paper? Of course it can. Of course it can. But the singular focus is not, again, these one-to-one -one correlations, and it is that focus on the kingdom and king that's going to help us persevere because it reminds us that, that no matter what's going on down here, there's no panic in the Godhead. Let me say that again. Some of you really, you need to hit, that needs to hit home with you. No matter what's going on down here, there has never been, there never will be any panic in the Godhead. How does that affect your attitude? How does that affect your disposition? How does that affect your conversation? How does that affect you, how you relate to people that you love? How you relate to people you, you're not that crazy about? If, if what was going on in a lot of Christian conversations was truly reflective of what was going on in the Godhead, we might think God was in a panic. Trust me. The Trinity is not in a discussion with itself in heaven, wringing its hands, biting its nails to the quick with wide eyes. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? What's happening in America? I mean, I thought at least we had West Virginia. I'll tell you what, it's those Maryland freaks that keep moving across the river and they leave their politics on the other side of Potomac. All right? All right? That's not the discussion going on within the Godhead. Right? I'm not saying God is unconcerned. I, 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 here's what I'm saying. If your conversation is dominated by those kinds of themes, I'm not saying you should never talk about it. I, but when you are consumed with that, 
you don't have your gaze high enough to persevere through what comes next. You don't have it. This book was written, at least in part, so that 2,000 years later, your gaze would be lifted. Out of the fray of everything that's transpired around us, because you're not even going to notice it once you bear witness to the unveiled glory of Jesus and his kingdom. You will persevere through anything. Be blessed by this book. Trust in this book. Endure, persevere as a result of this book. You remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? First martyr ever recorded in Scripture. A deacon who can just preach the doors off a barn. And just as they're hitting him. See, we, we like to talk about martyrdom like, oh, it's glorious. It's just great. It's wonderful. Really? Rocks that big hitting you in the skull? You're looking at your own brain matter falling out on the ground while you're still conscious? Listen, there's nothing glorious about martyrdom when it's happening. Some of y'all lost your ever-loving mind when you're asked to wear masks for a few months. So this whole, oh yeah, that's great. Well, boy, if we'd lived back then, we'd have shown Rome what's up. I have my doubts. Y'all believe I love you, right? Yeah, I love you, okay? What pushes Stephen through? Do you remember? Same thing he sees, same thing John sees here. I see the Son of Man standing. Yeah, that, that will help you endure. That will help you be faithful. And that is something you can depend on. Let me tell you why. We get just a little bit of a, kind of a, almost just a little bit of a preview of, of all this unveiled glory that's coming in these next verses. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I, I'm so glad he turned around. I, I don't know about you. I, I might have been afraid to turn around with something overwhelming. But I am so glad. And the, I, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What's this mean? This is imagery, okay? This is not literal. Jesus doesn't have a literal sword coming out of his mouth any more than when he says in the Gospels, I am the door. That means he has a knob and a, and a skeleton key lock, okay? This is apocalyptic, unveiling imagery intended to communicate literal characteristics. Now, if you are a creative, artsy kind of person, you're ready for this. Like, you're already, yeah, I get it, Pastor. Feed me, okay? The other 95% of us, though, are not like you, and we got a steeper learning curve. 
And so there's another probably super majority of people in the room right now that are are like me when I first reached. I'm like, okay, he's going to use imagery. What he's conveying is literal meaning, but what he says is not literal. Why don't you just come out and say it? How many of you felt that way in your devotional life? Lord, would you just tell me what I'm supposed to do? Would you just like burn a freaking bush or something? Like, would you just come out with it? What's the deal with this apocalyptic imagery? And I'm going to refer you back to Daryl Johnson again. Phenomenal book. It's right out here in the foyer. His book, Discipleship on the Edge. And he says the following about this. Imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. You ever heard a picture is worth a thousand words? You ever been to an art gallery and gotten emotional? Or seen a scene on television of the way they, they did the graphics, the CGI, whatever, you got emotional. Imagery has the power to do that. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. See, sometimes, especially when you see God, I would imagine words come up short, don't you? Read Ezekiel's vision. All right. The further he goes in chapters one and two in that vision, that whole wheel within a wheel thing, y'all remember that? All right. It's like, it's like the more he tries, the more vague it gets. He keeps, he keeps doing everything he can to try to describe what he's seeing, and it comes up short. So John, thousands of years later, says, okay, I've got a literary device that might help us capture this a little bit better. They can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, which in turn informs the intellect and ignites the emotions. A persecuted church would need that, wouldn't you think? So what do we get from this image? His hair was white like wool. I know we, we live in a culture that worships youth and beauty and vitality. and I, I, We don't worship beauty. We worship a very truncated, castrated view of beauty. I'll just put it that way. All right? We worship all that kind of stuff. Proverbs 16 says what? of a gray head. It's a crown of glory. Jesus has been around for a while. In fact, there was never a time when he did not exist. His hair is white like wool. He is eternal. His eyes were like a blazing fire, which means he has a perception and knowledge that burns through every veneer. There is nothing he does not see. There is nothing of which he is not aware. His feet are like bronze. 110th Psalm reminds us that the enemies of Christ will one day be his footstool. This bronze feet indicate irresistible strength. He is established in his power. He has seven stars in his right hand, which we don't have to do too much guesswork there. Verse 20 of this chapter tells us those stars are the angels. Those are the pastors of the seven churches. Jesus is saying with that vision, I'm not just with you. I hold you. I hold you. A voice like many waters. You ever been to Horseshoe Falls at Niagara? Anybody? It's quite intimidating. When you're standing right there at the railing, you cannot have a conversation. It's that loud. And and that's really the first thing that I, I think about when I think about the voice of many water. The sound of his voice is both resonant and overwhelming and drowns out every other voice. 
Listen, brothers and sisters, if you're misdirected as to how you need to conduct yourself or the disposition you need to have at this time and place, if later on in this series you're holding up the mirror of revelation to your life and it doesn't quite match, it ain't because God's not speaking. He is speaking to a way in such a way as to be unavoidable to your ears. You ain't listening. His mouth contains a two-edged sword. We're going to see that picture again when we get to chapter 19. He's the ultimate judge and conqueror because with that sword he will later smite the nations large swaths of people and then finally his face is like the sun you can't stare into it this this is the awesome description of the son of man that's a phrase used repeatedly in scripture to describe the second person of the trinity it was jesus favorite description of himself when he was on earth we see it all the way back in daniel chapter 7 the first vision that he has there is one like the son of man and that vision was given to daniel during the babylonian exile john 60 years earlier before this moment had witnessed some semblance of it in the transfiguration in matthew chapter 17 and here it is again revealed to tired discouraged hated Christians, someone more awe-inspiring than any Caesar. And he hasn't changed. And he's still here. That, that's your hope and mine. He's still here. So, so let's remember once again what's happening. Suffering churches facing unspeakable hardship. Okay, We know nothing of what they suffered. We, we just don't. But don't you imagine that they wondered if it was worth it? I, I imagine they did. Because even though I've never experienced anything like what these people in history experienced, I have in my adult life wondered, is it worth it? Should I keep going? Should I continue to obey? Should I keep doing it? And into that environment comes this letter revealing the truth behind it all and revealing the Lord of truth who's going to guide them. And his mere description here screams to these churches and to us 2,000 years later, he can be depended on. Yeah, I, none of us have been through anything like this, but it would be pastorally insensitive of me if I didn't recognize that many of us have felt what they have felt. Discouraged, defeated, Outraged, possibly, annoyed, paranoid, wondering what was next, wondering if it was worth it. Listen, God's word to us in this moment as we see this curtain start to be pulled back is he's still here and he can be depended on, which means that, that you and I can really only give one proper response to that. And that is to worship the one who is revealed. It is to follow after the pattern that we see in the apostle in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living, I'm the first and the last, by the way, is more, that's, that's not just rhetoric. Everything originated from me and everything will have its terminating point in me. That's what it means. I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died and behold, I am alive. See, you tied back in again. All this is true. All this can be depended on. You can give your life for this because a dead man rose from the dead. 
and he'll lead you into new life if you will persevere. This is John's response to fall on his face in absolute awe and to hear Jesus assure him, I'm not your enemy. I have all the power and you do not need to fear. That's what we need right now. For the moment I think God has called us to, and I'm not just talking about 2022, I'm talking about beyond. This entire book involves a revealing of this God that will overwhelm all of our senses and remove all of our fear. Like I said, it's a book of consummation. It's a book of spiritual dynamics. And because of that, this is a book that can put steel in your back no matter what because it reveals your Messiah in all of its glory. How easy do you think it would have been, just comparatively, I think we can all agree, right? They went through far worse than anything you and I have been through. It's legitimate that we've been through a lot. It's legitimate that we feel the way we feel. Those, those things shouldn't be ignored. That'd be insensitive. But, but we can agree. We, we haven't been through anything like what they've been through. So how easy do you think it would have been for them, let alone us, living in the first century to hate the Romans? To pull the trigger on isolation and physical separation. To look at everything around them and conclude the world is coming apart and everything is against me and I have enemies everywhere and I need to lock and load and fight and stock up on ammo and cam goods. I'm, I'm convinced that was the enemy's strategy. Constantly trying to deceive and distract them, getting them to think the battle is right here. We need the book of Revelation, not so we can identify our earthly enemy. Listen, we already know who that is. And it's not your neighbor. We need it to see Jesus. We need it to understand the spiritual dynamics behind the veil so that we can be faithful, so that we can see what the first century church saw, so that our faithfulness will match theirs. And then there's something we'll see, maybe not even in this life. Okay. Are you willing to give up seeing the victory here on earth? See, that's the big question. Because these churches, they never saw it. They never, ever saw the fruit of their labor. Didn't see it. They saw people come to Christ. But by the time these people died, Domitian was still in power. Christianity was still persecuted. Things were not getting better. They were getting worse. You know why they were able to do what they were able to do? Because they were willing on the basis of a resurrected Lord to exchange a culture war for kingdom advance. You can't do both. You're going to have to pick one, okay? You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in sex. You cannot serve God in power. You're going to have to pick one. You're going to have to pick one. But let me tell you what the result is. Right. Again, these people didn't even see it, but they loved God and neighbor in the face of everything else. And, and the result of that is those Romans that they would have been tempted to hate not only became converts, they would become the primary carriers of the Christian faith so that by A.D. 351, 350 million Roman citizens called Jesus Lord. That was 51% of the empire. Because the church two centuries earlier refused to see them as adversaries and they kept loving God and neighbor in the face of everything that culture was throwing at them. Let me tell you why that's important right now. I think you already know. Culture's not exploding right now. We can all be thankful for that. Amen? 
We're not where we were a year ago. We're not where we were 18 months ago. I'm very so very thankful for that. It's like so many of you, I am so incredibly tired. But we'd be fools to not admit the reality of what's going on around us. Culture at present is simmering. It's on a low boil. Every other article I read in the last week used the phrase civil war. You say, well, that's conspiratorial thinking. I don't think that's right. Then you don't believe what the Bible teaches about human depravity and what we're actually capable of. I don't know. See, that's the thing. I, I can't control that stuff. I, I've, got, I've heard pastors say, well, the church, if it would just unite, it could do this and it could stop. And it, yeah, yeah. The Lord could do it. I'm not sure that's our calling. But guys, this stuff's been building up for decades. And there's a lot of preachers over the next 24 months to 36 months, and they're going to be at it again, just like they were a year ago telling you we got to fight, folding all of that under some kind of eschatological framework and connecting all of that with the, the second coming. I, I had that to deal with here about a year ago. It's kind, it kind of interesting. I had people that got really upset with me. I'm not angry with them. I love them. But it was funny because they were like, you got, you're not listening to the prophets. And, and they were talking about these YouTube idiots that were, that were predicting all this stuff. And you know what? Not a blessed thing they predicted happened. Not a blessed thing. And you're still going to listen to that? Not a thing. You know what that means, by the way, if you understand your Bible? If we were living under the old covenant, it'd be time for them to die. That's what it would mean. Right? Instead, people bind their books. If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, the thing which he declares does not come to pass... You read the rest of it. Deuteronomy 18. I don't, there's no need to exegete that. Just read it. It means what it means. Some of y'all still listen to that crap, and that's what it is. It's crap. Because they're saying something that you hope is going to happen, because your hope is in something other than Jesus. That's why you need this book. I'm trying to tell you because I love you that there is someone more powerful and glorious and beautiful than any Caesar who could ever promise you anything. You can adopt that, that thing. Like I say, a lot of preachers will. The, the most generous description I can give of that is to tell you it is a constipated way of viewing the kingdom of God. It just is. And if the ancient Christians had taken that posture, it is likely you and I wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't. But there is something more profound going down if we will, over these next 19 weeks, dare to look behind the veil. We will realize this is our moment. Are we going to go or not? Are we going to obey or not? Are we going to value king and kingdom above all or not? What are we going to do? We were built for this. We as a church, I believe, exist for this. Like every other church in the West, we are under review. He says, I've got you. Remember, he holds the seven stars in his hands. We're going to see that next week as he speaks to the churches. Yeah, I've got you. 
I've got you, and I can do what I want to with you, so watch yourself. Watch yourself, lest I have to extinguish you. Jesus is watching. Here's the good news, guys. Everything we need to claim the victory he offers is found right here in every ounce of its unveiled glory. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that two millennia ago you write words that though not written directly to us are still as sharp as a scalpel, piercing to the very separation of bone and marrow because you love us. Father, you love these men and women. You love these boys and girls. You love these youth that are coming back even as I speak now from a a weekend away. And you have glorious purpose for us. Lord, may the next weeks, beginning with what we have read about your glorious presence and eternality and reliability and truth, Lord, may those things lift our gaze. May we have an ultimate hope. May we truly have a substance in things that we hope for. May we look to the evidence here in your word of things we do not yet see. And Lord, make us victorious in all of that. Father, if there are people here who don't know you, Lord, may today be the day that they recognize you are the judge of all history and that there is a way today through turning from their sin and putting their faith in you that they can hear from you the same thing your servant John heard from you your right hand on their shoulder. I am not your enemy. Fear not. But Lord, without you, there is every reason to fear. And so may we run to you. May we be found faithful. And may these next few weeks build within us a steel in our backs and and a, a solid shield around our souls that is impenetrable by our enemy. May we move forward in the very power and might of the resurrection. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.